Hey, it's Gabe uh, for State of the Art. This week, we're not going to have a new episode in reaction to the murder of George Floyd and the protests going on across the United States and the world. I just want to clearly state that at State of the Art, we strongly believe that Black Lives Matter and acknowledge the racism and privilege that exists in both the worlds of art and technology. On Instagram, we put a list of organizations you can donate to to help support protesters and communities with legal help like the Legal Rights Center and also arts organizations like Black Table Arts, which provide support for artists and communities working towards better futures. So this week, we're going to air an episode I recorded in November with Glenn Kantov, one of the founders of Movers and Shakers, an artist and activist who uses technology to highlight the narratives of the oppressed. So once again, let's welcome Glenn Kantov to the podcast. Hey, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Gabe B.C., and for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology. Each week, I'll be having a conversation with another artist, curator, inventor, robot, museum specialist, or CEO about how creative people are working with tech. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear more about, feel free to send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. All right, let's get this week's episode started off. A couple of episodes ago, we had Ari Melenciano on the podcast. You may remember her as the founder of Afrotectopia. And while I was at Afrotectopia, I happened to meet an artist named Glenn Kantov, uh, who's going to be the guest on our podcast today. Glenn Kantov is an activist, performance artist, and social entrepreneur who uses immersive technology to highlight the narratives of the oppressed. He has been a TED resident, an artist in residence at iBeam, and a member at New Inc., the arts tech incubator at the New Museum. Glenn, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So um, let's get started. How did you get involved with activism in the first place? And how did this uh, come together with technology for you? Well, my mom has always been sort of a troublemaker. Um, <laughs> in what sense? In a lot of senses. But from the perspective of activism, um, she's been organizing is really in her blood. So she worked at a Rite Aid for a while as a pharmacy technician and her coworkers and herself didn't get proper benefits. And so she ended up organizing around that and got uh, 1199 SCIU at the time, the largest healthcare workers union in the country, like in her Rite Aid. Then she did it for two other Rite Aids. And then it was just like a snowball effect from there. She started doing stuff for um, local elections, national elections. And she took me to the Eric Garner protest in Staten Island and um, it's really hard to explain, but I just remember the feeling in every cell of my body just erupting and knowing that, like, this is the trajectory of my life. I have to do something about these social issues. And when was that? What was um, that protest? 2013, I believe. Okay. Summer of 2013 was when I was killed, yeah. And so that kind of made a huge impact on you at the time. Very much so. And what came from that? Like, did you start making projects immediately or did you start... Uh, staging protests immediately? So, so it wasn't immediate. So I was I was at school um, and I was involved in student government. So like I knew that like I wanted to do something ar around the realm of social change. But really my um, me diving into activism started um, it was, it was sort of a process. So um, summer of 2015, I was interning at Mayor de Blasio's office and I learned through the bureaucracy that exists within the system that that the change that I wanted to make would exist outside of the system. And so I tried to do different organizing efforts that I thought were in line with what the mayor wanted, but because politics, because power, because insert excuse, um, I was shut down every step of the way. And so from there I was like, okay, I need to do stuff 
outside of the system. What was the internship about at the time at the at the mayor's office? Was it just like a standard internship? Yeah, standard internship. Um, have my own department, desk, computer. And you were trying to like, <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't trying there. to do what I was told to right. do. I guess like I, I did my work, but then outside of that, I was like, okay, let's make some change. There's 70 interns. Let's like actually do stuff. There's stuff going on in the world. Um, but it wasn't allowed to do that. And so, so what did you do like outside of uh, the internship? Um, so I, what I attempted to do was, um, so it was the summer 2015 when the Dominican government was retroactively taking citizenship away from a lot of its citizens, something that could be a reality here, folks. But, um, so then the people, most of the people were targeting at black Haitian people and black Haitian people at the time that only knew Spanish as a language, only knew the Dominican Republic. And it was completely racist. So I went to Council Ma- Councilman Matthew Eugene, the only Haitian-born uh, councilman. He said he wanted to organize it around it as well. I said, okay, there's, you know, 70 other interns. We can definitely do something. And so we started making making phone calls, started hosting meetings, like in my lunch. And then a higher-up was like, you can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Did you get fired from the internship or anything? Or I, just, didn't, I didn't yeah. get fired. Um, I actually had, like, a study abroad thing that started, like, right after I got, like, in trouble, more or less. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I should go do that. And it was a Spanish. good time to leave, it sounds like. Yeah, it was about And then time. how did it start with working with augmented reality or working with technology in protests for you? Yeah, so um, I I was working at Jump Into the Light. It's a, a VR cinema um, in the Lower East Side. At the time, it was on Bowery. And um, just simple stuff. I was that guy who was outside, who was like, hey, have you tried VR yet? Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> stuff like that, right? <laughs> How did you end up in that job? Like, were you interested in VR at the time or was it more just like a gig you were looking for? No, I was really interested in it. And I'd, yeah. never, I'd never seen a VR cinema before. Like, literally walking into a space where people had headsets on and were moving their arms around and spinning in these chairs. Like, I've never seen that behavior done in a space. And I was like, wow, it's here. It's now. Let's go. What do you need? I didn't see a help wanted sign. I just asked. And huh. I just started helping out. Um yeah, and then from there, like just being exposed to the different tools that are at your disposal that that were available at the time, it it just got my brain ticking because I think about the fact that you know you have these tech bros in Silicon Valley that are making billions of dollars disrupting systems, processes, cultures, all of this, right? But for social change, that is not happening. Right. And so I was like, okay, I thought at first that like maybe VR could be a way to fight the alt right because at the time this was like during the 2016 elections, right? I thought it could be an interesting tool to like immerse people and make people feel things in different ways that they that would like un- unpack certain traumas or whatever. Um, but then it sort of evolved into augmented reality. Uh, the main reason being cost and accessibility. It's, mm-hmm. it's expensive and it's a lot to, cre- to create in, in a VR experience. And then in terms of your headsets as well, I mean, not too many people have them, right? But 83% of Americans have smartphones and you could just do it with AR. So. Right. Yeah, I've heard that a lot from people about VR, that they feel like it's a super interesting medium, but it's sort of limited in that way, right? Where you can't expose people who have never done it before, or it's it's you have to have all these computers and all these headsets in order to move forward with it. Right, that's the problem. AR is today, VR is tomorrow, I think. Really? I think so. And yeah. so what was the first project that you made yourself? I mean, you're working in this uh, VR cinema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then how did you make the jump to actually creating a piece? Yeah, so the way it started was... Um, it was, I saw Sutu's book, Prosthetic Reality, um, on the wall as an installation that jumped into the light. And I remember walking home one day, and this was when I was organizing around the uh, statue of Christopher Columbus, the Columbus Circle. My team, we were trying to get rid of him. We were trying to figure out creative ways to do so. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. If we can make an AR book or some sort of installation on the story of Columbus, like, let's go. So then from there, I just like brought my team together and we just 
deconstructed this process. It's like, okay, there's animation involved, there's illustration involved, there's sound design involved, like there's an app that is necessary, mm-hmm. right? Like who knows how to do what? And just started like bringing people together uh, around this collective vision. And then we created a prototype and started and used that to host teach-ins in public spaces. And aside from the fact that our teachers were provocative, like we had like a slave auction performance piece in the middle of Union Square to sort of tie Columbus to the genesis of the transatlantic slave trade. Like aside from that very visual and provocative and visceral element to our protest, the fact that we were exposing New York City to a technology that most people had not seen, like it drew crowds pretty quickly and it went viral uh, a lot of the time. This was in 2015, you said? This was in... Um, or this was in 2017. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. After the election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what was the piece that you were showing in Union Square? You were doing this uh, auction, but was there, there was an AR piece that was component yeah. um, of it so there as were, well? Yeah. There were a few AR pieces that were that were created. Um, actually, one of the pieces were from Prosthetic Reality. Um, Sutu connected me to Ezra Clayton Daniels and um, Adibokola Bondunrin. I hope I'm not butchering your name. Sorry, Buki. Um, and yeah, they were all about what we were doing. They just said, you know, just let us, like, credit us and have like keep track of everything that you're doing with it and we were down with it and especially for the slave auction piece like they their piece specifically shows an auction block and when you hold your phone um when you hold the augmented reality app over the auction block it immediately turns into uh a courtroom and you and the slaves turn into prisoners and it's raining money so it speaks to cash bill mm-hmm. right and part of what we were looking to do with Christopher Columbus specifically was highlight the genesis of white supremacy and link it to structural racism and its manifestations in the present day, right? So, like, whether it's the fact that the, pis- the pilgrims didn't have visas and what that means for DACA and TPS and the Supreme Court case that's coming up, or the fact that Columbus catalyzed the transatlantic slave trade and what that means for the system of mass incarceration and criminalizing poverty and putting black and brown people in cages. Like, that link doesn't directly exist, in my opinion, and, and that piece just, like, does it instantly through the medium of AR. And mm. it's not just AR for the sake of AR, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seems like AR has the tendency or possibility to, to add a layer of truth, right? If you want to use it that way. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it also has the possibility to add a layer of, uh, you know, fake news or something as well. I guess Absolutely. it depends on who's creating these these pieces. Absolutely. Um, do, you, do you work with AR frequently to sort of expose truths in, in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So like, my perspective is, number one, like, why AR, right? Because there are a lot of people that do it just to do it. And so there has to be, like, a specific value proposition. So, like, one of our projects, for example, is an augmented reality monuments project. And in terms of how we came about, um, use, in terms of how we came to the medium as a solution, you have to go back to the past. So, like, if you look at the riots that happened in Charlottesville, they happened because uh, it was a response to the Charlottesville Blue Ribbon Commission deciding to remove monuments of Confederate generals uh, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And so the Nazis and Klansmen organized and protested, and there was a lot of violence. I was there. I saw it myself. It was it was horrendous. And so if you're trying to challenge a monument or challenge this preconceived notion that you know, white supremacy and intimidation and, submi- and submission of people of color should just be the status quo, that tension creates problems, right? And the same happened with our with our organizing around Columbus. Like in New York City, there's 155 statues of men, there's six statues of women, there's 23 animals, and they've only removed one statue and they're trying to put up 10 statues of women, which is good. But at the end of the day, the discrepancy that I just described is years in the making, mm-hmm. right? And the 
main element here is cost. So bringing that back to augmented reality, what we're working on is an augmented reality monuments tour. And it's in, in a, in sort of a bolder vision, it's a catalog of women, people of color, the LGBTQIA plus community, people, and even present day people like Colin Kaepernick. It's like people that traditionally do not get monuments and stories that are traditionally untold. And the reason why we're using augmented reality is because of the fact that we can make them any size, we can put them any place, we can do it with permission, we can do it without permission. So that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, I'm really interested in monuments too and the effect that they have on people and the fact that they're sort of these permanent things. Mm. But you're using a device that's somewhat impermanent, right? Like you're creating these apps that might be ephemeral in some way. Mm. Is that something that you struggle with? Like the idea that you have to maintain this app over time? In a way, it's sort of like uh, the opposite of a monument, right? Mm -hmm. But it also allows you flexibility, which monuments don't have. Uh, Is that something you think about when you create these apps or these art pieces? It's a tactic. Um, I'm going to start with like the monuments first and then move into the AR monuments. So the way that I feel about this is that you look at Christopher Columbus, and you look at, you compare Columbus to Adolf Hitler, for example. There are no statues of Adolf Hitler standing in Germany today. But everyone knows who he is. So it's not as if you're erasing the history. It's about what a monument really means. If you look at German curricula, they acknowledge the fact that their people had a part in genocide, right? And like they really unpack it and everyone understands it. It's not sugarcoated. And if you go to Berlin, you can't go more than 100 meters in Berlin without seeing some sort of memorial Mm -hmm. of a family that was taken away by the Nazis or by the SS. And that's necessary. That's important. You have to be hyper aware of that. And then if you look financially, they paid reparations out to these families as they should. The U.S., it's a completely different case. And so the way that I feel is that, you know, I don't have to stand on my soapbox and give every stat to uh, every stat in the book to prove that st- systemic racism is a thing. Most people agree mm. in liberal circles, at least that it's a thing. Um, and so the way that I see it is that challenging the notion that someone who is regarded with a national holiday, who has the, who is, who has the name of our country's capital and who is literally in statues all over the country, like challenging that notion and challenging the fact that like, there's so much hypocrisy embedded in the social foundation of our of our laws, our systems, our processes as a country. That is necessary to get to the point of reparations and acknowledgement and democratizing narratives in, into a place that has such rich culture. So the way that I see it is that with monuments, it's like, look, if systemic racism wasn't a thing, Myself as an individual, I'd be tackling other issues and someone more sensitive can go ahead and handle the statues. It's not even fully about the statues. Mm-hmm. It's about the narratives and what that means in terms of oppression, in terms of how that impacts people's lives in the daily. Now, in terms of augmented reality, the way that I see it is that it's it's a simple way to get these stories out, uh, get these stories out that people don't traditionally engage with. Right, And so there's power to seeing people that look like you in positions of authority who have completed great who have completed great achievements like look at black panther like representation matters Mm -hmm. and the the numbers and the the numbers in terms of the crowd turnout the numbers in terms of the dollar that's spent it's showing that people are hungry for that 
right? So like the first step is to get the story out. And over time, if we want to do monuments in the traditional stone, stone, stone form or redefine what that means in cool, immersive ways, I'm all for it. But this is a, the mo AR monuments is a step in, of a process that is much greater than what we're doing, much greater than myself. And just want to add fuel to the fire. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it's all about creating that discussion, right? And, Absolutely. you know, you've, what, who are some of the people that you've created monuments of so far? So, so far we have, um, we have Colin Kaepernick, we have Serena Williams, we have uh, Toussaint Louverture, we have Tupac Amaru, um, we have Audrey Lord, we have Shirley Shism. Um, there's a few more I want to keep under wraps yeah. for now, but uh, yeah, we have we have a few that are and this, coming up. And this app is out already, or is it something that's that you're developing currently? So it's not out yet. Um, we're going to be releasing um, at least 10 of the monuments for Black History Month, and that's when the app will be released. And this is under your uh, company that you've started, right? It's yeah. a company or collective? Yeah. So um, Movers and Shakers is a nonprofit. Um, and yeah, we started um, April of 2017, unofficially incorporated December 2017. And now there's three of us full time. And then we have like a bunch of de dedicated volunteers and it's slowly becoming a thing. What was the process of you know starting this uh, collective like? You started at New Inc or is that, was it done before New Inc? No, um... <laughs> so like i guess i have this like uh i get it from my mom yeah um i was working a full-time job and then at lunch i started organizing yeah it sounds like, like you do this a lot <laughs> <laughs> it's a pattern that i'm noticing right yeah. now um yeah just started organizing around it and then just started putting more and more time into it um saved up money took a leap of faith and just started going and then like was a little bit broke and eating pork buns every day yeah um and then you know part-time job here and there, whatever. And then September 2018 um, was when we started at New Inc. And um, my partner Idris uh, joined full-time, quit his job at Google. And then February 2019, um, Michael 404, um, he's our partner as well. Idris is uh, chief technology officer, Micah is chief creative officer. And uh, Micah joined us full-time, so that, that's that's the team right now. Awesome. And uh, have any like tech companies approached you to work with you? At this point are you trying to stay away from sort of like the silicon valley scene um no i mean it's 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 an interesting song and dance obviously um in terms of like pure tech companies like we haven't gotten a call from like facebook or anything mm -hmm. i don't know if i want to call from facebook yeah. that's a whole different conversation <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but um uh so right now we're sponsored by verizon um so we won the 5g ed tech challenge it was a national open call um, for creative applications of 5G in the in the classroom um, to increase engagement in different ways. Um, and so we were one of 10 teams were, uh, that were selected and we were placed in a 15-week product accelerator. Um, and which project was that for specifically? And so it was originally for our AR Monuments project. Mm. The idea was to um, execute geolocation augmented reality uh, and place them in public spaces as well as have them be supplements for uh, classroom learning activities. Uh, but the roadblock was that, given the given the rollout of the of the five G and the timing of the product accelerator, they just weren't aligned. And so they were like, "We we're into into y'all, your skill set, your social mission, all of that. Uh, refine the concept and come back to us." And so, within that the space of that product accelerator, we did that. And so uh, it was through that that we created Unsung. And Unsung is a multiplayer augmented reality learning experience targeted at 6th to 8th grade uh, English students. And the story um, focuses on female singers of color through different periods of time who have used their voices to advocate for social change. Mm. 
And so what we're trying to do here is not only like unpack stories that aren't about Dr. King and Harriet Tubman and what you traditionally learn about in your schools, but um, sort of empower students to to engage with a new technology, see themselves in a new technology, and also sort of get into um, curricula in a way that we couldn't if we had to change the curricula. So we're intentionally focused on English classes because as long as we're hitting the standards, there's a lot more flexibility versus putting it in an English class where you're teaching to a test and it, versus putting it into a history class mm-hmm. where you're teaching to a test where that's fact-based and you have to teach these facts and nothing else matters. And so how does the experience work within the classroom? Like what do students do? Like how do they interact with it? Yeah, great question. So um, students get an iPad. And the onboarding process is something that we're developing right now. Um, but the basics of it is that a student would would read a passage that aligns with the Common Core standards, and then they would work together in groups to answer the questions in the app. And so the way the story box l- looks, it's like a digital dollhouse. Hmm. And within the digital dollhouse, there are different rooms. And so imagine an escape room where you have to solve different puzzles to move to each room it's a similar process in the regard that each story box is about a different character so um or icon um so one example is odetta holmes odetta holmes was a folk singer she was known as the voice of the civil rights movement she actually opened up for dr king during the march on washington and so students would read about odetta and then they would answer specific questions and then the answer key to those questions would be a code Hmm. And then based upon that code, you'd be able to unlock a room that and the content in the room revolves around the content that the students read about. From there, the students would be able to click into the room. They'd have six degrees of freedom and look all around the room and they'd see different media. So whether it's pictures, videos, sound, they could play, pick things up and play like a little guitar, let's say. And all of the media would revolve around a specific theme. The students would work together to figure out what that theme is. And then once they get a correct answer to that theme, they'd be able, they'd be, they would unlock the next phase and be able Mm. to go to the next um, piece of content and then explore that room. And these rooms, these rooms are all augmented reality rooms. Yes. And once you enter them, though, you see them almost like virtual reality, but through a a lens. So you can like explore them within your own classroom. Exactly. Yeah. And do the students ever create content within the app or are they more responding to content that's being presented to them? Yeah. So for for now, it's just responding to the content and um, sort of a barrier for us. I'd be I'd love to maybe talk to you offside about about uh, figuring out ways to to democratize these tools, but sort of what we, what we've uh, encountered throughout our process is that we're in a space where it's very much like um, the dot-com boom where mm-hmm. it's, where at the time where during the dot-com boom, you needed a certain skill set to make a website. Now with, uh, you know, your Squarespaces and your Wixes of the world, it like everyone can do it. Right. And that's sort of the situation that we're with, uh, that we're here that's the situation that we've encountered with our augmented reality um, in the regard that like making quality content still requires a specific skill set. Um, and, you know, it's deeper in the stack and we'd like to sort of unpack that and make it more readily available for students to be able to make things of a similar quality. But from our experience, it's just not there yet. Yeah. 
So are you working with developers to develop these pieces or is, are you doing it yourself too? Yeah. 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 Um, is it your team like the three people? Or? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Thank God. Say, wow. How are you no, doing no, that no. with three people? It's yeah, crazy. No, no. It's, 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 more, it's more than three of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Egal Nasima, um, mm-hmm. super bright. Um, they're doing a lot of the ba- uh, the backend development work with us. Uh, we're working with a team of writers. Um, excuse me. Yeah. A team of writers. Uh, we're doing a lot of like UX, UI testing in, in different schools. We're t- talking to a lot of students, to a lot of teachers. It's like a, it's a whole thing. How do you find designing an experience like this? I mean, for me, I've done some AR myself and it feels like you're making a film, but also you're making, you know, this coded narrative. And there's like a lot of different parts that have to come together to make it work in some way. Do you storyboard it out ahead of time or do you, yeah. do, you do a lot of user testing with students? Yes to both. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is three dudes in in a room with a whiteboard, right? Just, just, just drawing, <laughs> you're drawing, not, drawing. You're not in like middle school, right? So you're gonna you're not yeah. gonna know how people are thinking necessarily. Yeah. yeah, and and so like, what's what's kind of scary about this process is that, at least at first, before we started doing our our user testing, um, you know, a lot of it was just leap of faith assumptions. We think this would work. We feel this would work. And then when you talk to students and you talk to teachers, like they're in a whole other world, right? And at the end of the day, if the students don't like it doesn't work and if the teachers don't find it useful as a tool and doesn't hit their standards doesn't work so it was we had like a huge sigh of relief when this uh the students first started touching the app and they found it intuitive we didn't, there was a lot we just didn't have to explain that was great and then in terms of the actual content the teachers told us not only that um that it was useful for english classes and what they were looking for in the classroom but we spoke to teachers outside of english and they spoke about the fact that our story box storytelling format is flexible enough to the uh that it can be applied in uh history classes that it can be applied in arts classes Mm -hmm. science classes so this is bigger than english um and we don't know where we're going but we'll we're along for the ride yeah it's super exciting um do you are you continuing to develop it now and like is there a future version of the story box that's coming out yeah so um after the product accelerator from Verizon, um, they we they made it down to five teams, um, and there may be another. There may be another, but they cut it down to a few teams. Uh, they made another round, and so at this point, our task between now and September of 2020 is to make Unsung scalable. Hmm. Um, and so we're going to launch it in 40 schools. Uh, by then, uh, with Verizon support, and by September 2021, they want to put it in 100 schools. Oh, that's great! So we're really excited what's it? About I mean, that. what do you aim for when you're making an educational AR experience? Like, in what sense? Like, is the goal to entertain the students, but also to to convey the knowledge, or is it? I mean, like, are you going in with the same mindset that you're going in with a protest piece, or is it a completely different uh, mm. goal? Great question. So, uh, it sounds really corny, but like, edutainment is yeah. really, is really what we're going for because. At the end of the day, the kids are on social media. Like, I remember when I was a little kid, I was playing a lot of FIFA. Now it's Fortnite. Like, we're really competing for their attention while at the same time, like, we want them to leave with with valuable knowledge, right? So when it comes to preparing something for a protest, the only thing are, that we're focused on is that key insight of, like, oh, wow. First, this technology is cool. But second, I never thought about things this way or mm-hmm. I never saw this person in that light, right? Um, with education, it's a little bit more complicated because number one, kids have so much energy and their attention spans, 
at least I can speak for myself, I, I had no attention span. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because you seem to do three different things all at once, which maybe is helpful, right? You yeah. like, had a full-time job, you then create this other project at the same time. So maybe the, the, curse. <laughs> yeah, maybe the lack of attention span is helpful to you in some way. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, like there is a specific structure um, by which we need to ensure that this that students are making specific thematic thematic uh thematic connections that the level of reading comprehension is is at par with like experiences that do not include ar right um so there are definitely elements in terms of like academic in an academic context that we want to teach but then outside of that the other element is the social element mm-hmm. so I see value in teaching a white boy about about what it means to have privilege and access. So perfect example would be the story of Ella Shepard. So Ella Shepard is one of our story boxes. She was um, born on Andrew Jackson's plantation. And she was a talented singer. And she ended up teaching at um, the Fisk Free School for Coloreds, which is now Fisk, Fisk University. It was the first school in the United States um, that gave... Uh, quality education of an equal quality to black people as it did to whites and Mm -hmm. she founded this group called the jubilee singers and the jubilee singers went around the country and around western europe on tour and their concerts actually fundraised for the endowment of fisk university now the reason why i bring this up in relation to privilege is because they had access to everywhere. They performed in front of uh, President Grant. They performed in front of the Queen of England. But even though they were essentially rubbing elbows with royalty, a lot of the times they couldn't go to th- the front door. There were times where they literally couldn't walk into a hotel or they had to sleep outside. Like that dynamic is real. And so because of the fact that our experience puts you in the point of view of of the uh of the subject just as you would if you were reading a biography aside from the common core english standards a big focus of ours is like unpacking over time what it meant to succeed but also have restricted access Mm -hmm. and how you would persevere through that and using this medium to to tell that story in that way is something that i think a lot of people that have more privilege are not traditionally exposed to. Yeah, definitely. Do you find that there's opposition to your educational pieces like there is to your protest pieces? Have you encountered anything like that, like from the classroom or teachers? So far in terms of our educational pieces, uh, things have been mild-mannered. Um, for our protesting stuff, it's been a different story. There really? have been podcasts about me specifically. Um, really? I've gotten like, yeah. Like you know, like angry like, podcasts about you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what were the circumstances of that? Like, what was it a specific project? Was it the Columbus project or? Um, so I, I was on a podcast. Um, what was it? Um, Kent Bias podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Voices of VR. And I talked about just like my practice, uh, everything that I do. And it was like almost two hours just dissecting point by point how I was race baiting and how I wanted to erase history. Wow. And, um, yeah, I think they wanted, they were painting me as a communist, I think, um, or <laughs> close deal, to it. How do you deal with that? Like if someone's, you know, face, face, were you face-to-face with the person in the room talking about this? No, I found the link. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> I found the link online. I mean, oh, okay. it, it just, it comes with the territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, at, the end of, at the end of the day. I guess like, it's part of the discussion though, right? Like that means that you've hit a chord with people 
and you're you're having a conversation. You know, like yeah. if that conversation never happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be the status quo. You know, it's it's important to just start the conversation, whether it was an AR piece or a piece in the classroom. And if it makes people mad, you're probably doing the right thing, right? Right. And so, like, you know, I'd be I'd be naive to think that that one AR piece or a simple experience is going to unpack generations of trauma or fragility. Um, or systemic racism as a whole, right? And it's really, healing is a process. And AR is just a tool to facilitate that necessary healing process because the alternative is continued oppression. So if it's going to piss some people off, like we can engage in a dialogue about it and I'd be happy to talk to whoever. Yeah. Do you, are there other people that are working within the realm of AR uh, to, to use as a technology for protests? For protests specifically. Um, or to encourage political conversations. I mean, I've seen some projects, but you're kind of the person that people talk about a lot for this this sort of stuff. I found. I mean, I found you through Ari, who was a guest on this podcast mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, who ran Afrotectopia, and you you participated in Afrotectopia yeah. as well. And that's yeah, where yeah. I saw your work originally. I think right, so right, you had right. some pieces there. I think yeah. they were the Columbus pieces. Yeah, they right? were. They yeah, were. and um, I thought it was amazing because I hadn't seen AR used in that way before specifically yeah. I mean, i've seen a lot of you know games in ar i've seen a lot of you know kind of flashy here's some object floating in the real world right. but there's not a lot of storytelling and there's not a lot of uh activism specifically right so like it depends on how you define activism right because like um a thousand cuts um it's a great vr piece that like i think it's honestly i think it's for white people it puts you in the shoes of a black man um from being a kid to um being an older person and like it's sort of like uh it puts you through the microaggressions and the macroaggressions that um, someone like myself would face. Um, and I say that's activism in the regard that, like, at the end of the day, activism is making people uncomfortable um, and trying to achieve a specific goal. In this case, the goal was to open eyes, right? So, like, I haven't, although I, while I haven't seen so much of uh, VR, AR in street protests, but I think the day will definitely come. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of pieces, um, like a thousand cuts, um, where it's sort of, or like lessons in her story where it, it, you know, you can hold, you can hold your, uh, phone over a dollar bill or different textbooks and you can see, um, the men being replaced by women. Like that in itself is disruptive protest in a different form. Yeah, it's almost um, like alternate reality, right? Very much alternate so. reality. Yeah. I know you're familiar with that. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And are you, what do you see as the difference between art and, uh, activism? The difference between art because I was thinking about your definition of activism just now, and it was to get people mad and to convey a specific point of view, right? And a lot of art falls under that same category. Is is there an inherent difference you see between art and activism, or are they the same? So I think both of them have different branches because there's activism that is um, designed to add fuel to a fire. Um, and then there's activism that has specific objectives. Um, so if you look at like Occupy Wall Street, uh, I saw in a talk one time, someone mentioned the fact that without Occupy Wall, Wall Street, like the relative success of the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign wouldn't have happened, right? And then if you look at the relative success of his campaign, someone like AOC probably wouldn't have had that space. Mm-hmm. And now let's see what, what happens in the future, right? Um but in other cases, um, with art, a lot of it is just, you know, I'm making this for the sake of exploring the idea of questioning, to explore the idea of provoking other questions, to expire, whatever, right? There's no specific cause. But then you look at, like, um, 
the Shepherd uh, Fairy piece of Obama, like right. that had a very specific yeah. cause, right? <laughs> it did. So like it at the end of the day, both are really methods, both are tools to achieve whatever the artists or activists wants. Modes um, of communication. There are modes, yeah, there are huh. modes of communication. So I, I don't think I think it depends on who you are, really. Um, yeah. And let's talk about your piece, uh, We the People, which is a 360 documentary piece. How did that mm-hmm. come about? Yeah. So um, We the People started as a result of Jumping to the Light, actually. Um, that was my first foray into the immersive world and trying to get my hands dirty. Um, so the way it worked was that it was the day of the Trump inauguration. Um, I borrowed a 360 camera from them. And I uh, did a performance piece. Um, I put on chains and I wore a sign that said property of Trump and his friends in the 1%. I just wanted to capture what was going on because obviously there was a lot of boiling tension that day. And where, where did you do this performance piece? Um, I went down to, to D.C., tried to get into the inauguration. And the Secret Service stopped me because they said that I, like with those chains I could choke somebody. And with, <laughs> with my monopod I could hit somebody. And they were worried like, about you like doing damage to other people at that inauguration. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! And I was like, I was like, I think I'm the unsafe yeah. one here. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what was the was experience like? I mean, what was it like to be there doing this performance piece? Though, um, was it unsettling? Or? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was prepared. I was ready for whatever because you know, it's a lot of Trump supporters on that day, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to be realistic and understand that you're walking into a situation where anything can happen. But the like the I guess it's just the most offensive thing that I heard in the day was um, there was a woman with a MAGA hat drinking beers with her friends. And she looked at me and she said, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I want to I want to take him and tie him to the parking meter. Um, so that was kind of weird. Um But then I did like a little social experiment as well, because I wanted to get both perspectives and, and hear how like liberals and Trump folk <laughs> felt on that day. Uh, and the Trump people did not want to speak to me when I was wearing the chains. But as soon as I took off the chains, then we started having some sort of dialogue. Um, yeah, and that was that was the start of it. And then from there, I just saw the value in capturing events that would not be repeated through the medium of the future, especially given the fact that we're in this space that's going to be studied with the scrutiny of the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and like major social shifts paradigm shifts in our time mm-hmm. um and so i just went got a couple friends together from college and we uh took the camera to different spots and spoke to people of varying viewpoints um and that was actually the genesis of the columbus project because from there i wanted to do more like on the ground organizing um and so the columbus idea came from the fact that it was like okay let's start this initiative um, let's start an intentional initiative that can like shift conversation in a big way. Um, and that's sort of how it how it evolved. And the 360 video really put people kind of in that place. That was the goal of using that versus just doing like a traditional documentary or yes. performance video. So so I would say our most provocative piece um, goes back to the Charlottesville riots. Um, so on the day of the riots, I had the chains in my backpack with the experience in my mind knowing that certain people wouldn't want to talk to me if I was wearing the chains and I wanted to talk to everyone. And I remember walking to the park that day and I saw people hitting each other with hammers and flagpoles and tear gas everywhere. And the Nazis were arranged in a Spartan phalanx. And it was pretty clear 
that this was not the environment for a productive interview. Um, so then I just put on the chains and like ran up to the Spartan feelings and um, I don't know if I could sit, I don't know if I could curse in the podcast. Yeah, you can. I was basically, I said, this is what you represent, motherfucker. It's just like, as loud as I could. And it was crazy because it was a sea of them and it was maybe like a hundred and there were two reactions that I noticed because no one else was wearing chains. Um, as I'm screaming at them, half of them, like their eyes just opened up, their mouths open, like just like surprised, like, oh, what is going on here? And like the other half, it was just like amplified rage, their teeth, like grit, their eyebrows just like got real close like you could see the anger it's like a charge type of thing and they were throwing stuff at me whatever um i captured that in uh in 360 mm-hmm. and so it's always a little triggering for me because i was there and my life was a bit in danger yeah but um putting it on on people's heads um is it's always interesting to see their reaction Especially because we show this in a lot of galleries and pop-ups. Um, and so the audience that goes to galleries isn't always the type of audience that's going to go to a protest. Um, and so sort of um, exposing them to an environment that would provoke questions that w- they wouldn't ordinarily ask, um, is, I think is fundamentally important. And number two, um, at least in my experience, I think I've seen that it, it lasts with them when I've like shown friends and had conversations as far as like the meaning of seeing something where you can look all around and you're in it versus on a screen. Yeah. I think, you know, there's always this debate about VR and 360 video and the empathy machine, um, whether it really puts you in someone's shoes. Right. But if it's, if it's a really designed experience versus a documentation of your reality, <laughs> I feel yeah. like it's different. Do you know what I mean? Like I've yeah. seen some 360 documentaries where it's very clear, you know, carefully produced and it's, you know, designed to get a certain reaction out of you. Right. This is like you're capturing what's going on and I can be there next to you in a very disturbing kind of way. Um, do you ever worry, though, that it's because I wasn't actually at that protest, but I'm experiencing it through this medium that it somehow takes away from that experience? Do you know what I mean by that? Like if I'm watching it at a gallery, it's kind of what you brought up. But is it just important that you have that discussion with me or is it that uh, – is it some way that I'm not participating in the protests? You know what I mean? <laughs> because I'm experiencing it virtually. So I would I would think that the, that the question would hold more merit if it wasn't all over CNN mm-hmm. and if there weren't other forms of media that showed it. Like if this were the only other form that existed that showed Charlottesville, then I think that question um, would hold a lot of weight. But at the end of the day, people... like The fact that I just... When I give talks like all over the place and I just say Charlottesville, people instantly know what it is. Right. The reason why they instantly know what it is is because of their media consumption. Right. And they picture that one video we've seen over and over again through CNN, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that providing uh, a deeper layer to what happened on that day um, is valuable, especially given the fact that um, I can engage in a dialogue with a person who might have had questions right after right and are you always there when you're presenting your work yeah yeah and that's important to you too yeah yeah that makes sense for sure so what's next what are you working on now yes what's next um so yeah so the monuments tour is is coming out um well the air monuments are coming out uh for black history month we'll be doing a few talks um around that and then we'll be at south by southwest edu um, talking about our work for augmented reality in public spaces, uh, Idris and I. And um, 
and then from there, um, just preparing so that we can implement our our work at scale with the forty schools. And uh, I'm trying to be like you. I'm doing, doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. What's the name of the podcast? So the podcast is called Unpacked, and it's making space for conversations that we don't know how to talk about. So going back to the going back to the the topic of immigration and the fact that in many cases, like our state is deporting people who are indigenous to this land. Like, what does that really mean, right? Or the fact that if we're talking about, um, if we're talking about the fact that private prisons are being abolished, that's a great, that's a great thing. But what does that mean as far as like artificial intelligence and them taking over the roles of others and like, like the means of production and what that means for how the previously incarcerated people will exist in a new space and like the jobs that they would have maybe taken or also been taken by AI. Like we need to unpack these conversations and add nuance to these conversations if we're going to enact real substantive change. So that's what it's about. That sounds great. When is it coming out? Um, we're aiming for Black History Month. Mm-hmm. So starting with a couple episodes here and there. Awesome. I love that you use all these new technologies uh, <laughs> in completely different ways than the, the most people are using them, you know, to encourage different discussions, uh, whether it's AR or podcasting even, right, just to kind of bring people to issues that they wouldn't have been brought to otherwise. I think it's great. I mean, I think like, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to see where you take this in the future. <laughs> Thank you. So keep us in the loop for sure. Um, before we go, Glenn, I have some rapid fire questions for you. We always do this at the end of every uh, podcast. Go. They're kind of silly questions. Uh, so just answer them with the first thing that comes to for mind, sure. basically. Um, what's the best piece? This is actually not a silly question, but I want to ask anyways. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Breathe. I'll just it. do it right now. <laughs> if you, uh, <laughs> that's very good advice. Uh, if you could have three wishes randomly, uh, what would those wishes be for the world or for yourself or whatever, you know, whatever you'd like? Three can wishes of anything. Can you I wish for more wishes? No, you can't wish for more wishes. That's, that's the number what one. Is, what good is that? <laughs> that's the rule of this wish thing, this hypothetical wish scenario that everyone always asks about. No more wishes. Wish once to, to be able to talk anyone into doing anything. Wish two. Um, an abyss for a stomach so I can eat anything, but it doesn't affect my body. What do you like to eat specifically? Oh, you only want to. I'm a sucker for pork belly. <laughs> I really? I love me some pork belly. Yeah. Just by itself or like with a. Uh... Uh, like in bao yeah. by itself. I like, I like a. Uh, marinate it in like soy sauce and brown sugar and I'll do a, a slow bake, some <laughs> ginger, some. <laughs> let, let me just. Yeah. Um, and the third wish, um, for people not to be so in their feelings, like mm. a lot of problems that we have are so avoidable. But ego and they're specific and their own mind feelings, though. Yeah, yeah, it's all about the feelings. Like if we could just like put that to the side and just breathe. <laughs> but you also put people in their feelings with your work. I think to some extent, yeah, it's a process. Right. <laughs> it's a process. <laughs> <laughs> you need them to be there a little bit to yeah, join yeah. you. That's it's because just... I don't have the wish. Right, that's true. <laughs> Um, who would play you in, when they make the movie of your life, I should say, when? Because well, that'll happen at some point. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, oh, what's his name? You know who's cool? I like that guy, Luca, from uh, from uh, 
Gronish with the, with <laughs> the right. locks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool dude. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I'd want to be worthy of having him, yeah. having him play me, though. Like, he's a real cool dude. <laughs> well, Glenn, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I can't wait to see what uh, new projects you come up with and to hear your podcast, too. Thanks a lot, um, And lot we'll be in touch. And uh, for State of the Art, this is Gabe Barcia Colombo. I will talk to you next week. I hope you enjoyed that episode originally recorded last year in November with Glenn Kantov. Uh, just a reminder that you can find some more resources that we've gathered uh, to help out the cause, to donate to legal rights centers uh, on our Instagram. You can find them uh, at State of the Art on Instagram. Some causes to call out here. Legal Rights Center uh, provides criminal defense and legal services for low-income people of color in and around Minneapolis. That's legalrightscenter.org slash donate. Black Table Arts, blacktablearts.com, gathering black communities through the arts towards better black futures. Uh, and then Centro de Trabajadores Unidos en Lucha, uh, ctul.net, a worker-led organization where workers organize, educate, and empower each other to fight for a voice in their workplaces and their communities. Uh, also, just quickly to call out uh, some bailout funds, we put up uh, links to New York, brooklynbailfund.org, Los Angeles, blmla.org, and nationally at bailproject.org. Uh, for State of the Art, this is Gabe BC. Uh, I'll talk to you next week.